Well, thank you, Jim, Brother Jim, for leading us in our prayer. And uh, thank you to Thomas Becker. Thomas, it's so good to have you with us today. I tell you, when Thomas is your pinch hitter, uh, you're in pretty good shape with your worship team, and we're grateful to our praise team. Uh, we have some, some very close friends that are with us today. David and Jennifer Davis are here. David is a colleague in ministry uh, who was in Gwinnett County when we were there, started Hamilton Mill United Methodist Church and, and built a tremendous church there and now is in a specialized ministry. And uh, we're so grateful to see David and Jennifer with us today. Uh, Y'all lift your hands and people can greet you uh, after worship and speak to you especially. We are glad that you are not a part of the Gulf Coast exile, but that you are here in person today. And as Jim has already mentioned, we especially welcome uh, those of our friends who are online. Wherever you are today, uh, it is a, a great joy and privilege uh, to share God's word with you in your home, or if you're traveling, it's a great joy to be with you. Uh, I'm gonna read the scripture lesson this morning, uh, and I'm gonna read again from Acts chapter 15, uh, verses one through 21, and out of reverence for God and God's word, I invite you to stand for the reading. Dear friends, hear the word of the living God. Then certain individuals came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to discuss this question with the apostles and the elders. So they were sent on their way by the church and as they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, they reported the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the believers. Now, when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the sect of the Pharisees stood up and said, it is necessary for them to be circumcised and ordered to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders met together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, my brothers, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you that I should be the one through whom the Gentiles would hear the message of the gospel and become believers. And God, who knows the human heart, testified to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And in cleansing their hearts by faith, he has made no distinction between them and us. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing on the neck of the disciples a yoke that neither our ancestors nor we have been able to bear? On the contrary, we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Now the whole assembly kept silence and listened to Barnabas and Paul as they told of all the signs and wonders that God had done through them among the Gentiles. And after they finished speaking, James replied, my brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first looked favorably on the Gentiles to take from among them a people for his name. This agrees with the words of the prophets as it is written, after this I will return and I will rebuild the dwelling of David which has fallen. From its ruins I will rebuild it and I will set it up so that 
all other peoples may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles over whom my name has been called. Thus says the Lord who has been making these things known from long ago. Therefore, I have reached the decision that we should not trouble those Gentiles who are turning to God, but we should write to them to abstain only from things polluted by idols and from fornication and from whatever has been strangled and from blood. For in every city for generations past, Moses has had those who proclaim him, for he has been read aloud every Sabbath in the synagogues. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You be seated. Well, we're nearing the end of this series on the book of Acts, which we have been calling Empowered, which you may call the series that would never end. We have one more Sunday. Next weekend will be our 11th and final message on the book of Acts. But this chapter is, I think, not only the midpoint of the book of Acts, Luke's sequel to the gospel, I think it's a watershed moment in the life of the church that gives shape and form to the future movement at this point. And it begins, as you could tell by the reading, it begins with a church fight. Jesus said in Matthew 18, 20, wherever two or three are gathered in my name, I'll be there. But I don't know if you've also noticed that wherever two or three are gathered sometimes, there's also a difference of opinion. And I've noticed that the more diverse the gathering sometimes, the more variation there is in opinion. In my first year here, I can still remember it, Jim. I I think it was the first month I was here. After the message, I was standing in the back greeting people as they were leaving. And there was one person that came out and, and gave me the business, kind of chewed me out over the screen. And I'd only been here about a month, and so the first thing I said to the person is, I need you to know that I didn't do the screen. I didn't put the screen up. It's been there for a little while, but I'm going to use it because I've discovered that not everybody learns like I do orally. A lot of people learn better visually. And so I'm going to use it, but I didn't put it up there. And the next person that came behind her had seen how flustered this person was. This woman who came behind her was in her late 80s, I think. And she approached me very timidly and she looked both ways to make sure that nobody was watching. And she said, I like the screen. But it occurred to me how often these squabbles occur for everything really from sacraments to masks, to carpet color, how often there are church squabbles that need our attention. And this is one of them. As the gospel advanced in the first century into the Greco-Roman world, there were issues of faith and practice as there are today that needed sorting out. There were sticky wickets at every corner that if left unattended, might actually sabotage the mission and the witness. And one of those issues came to a head in Antioch. Antioch of Syria was about 300 miles from Jerusalem. It was the third most important city in the Roman Empire. There was Rome, Alexandria, and Antioch. 
It was composed of a very diverse population of Greeks, Jews, and Orientals, Orientals including Persians, Indians, and even people from China, if you can believe it. The Spirit was moving and the church was multiplying in this diverse city, and verse 1 spells trouble. Then certain individuals came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, look, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now you need to know that Jerusalem in Judea was headquarters. It was the home office for the gospel movement. The apostles and elders were still there after the stoning of Stephen. Most of the Christian believers had left the city of Jerusalem, but the 12 were still there. They were the muscle behind the mission. But it wasn't the apostles who caused the trouble. Notice how Luke says it, it was certain individuals. What does that mean? It means they were unauthorized. It means they were unsanctioned. It means, in other words, they were not sent by Jerusalem. They were self-appointed critics of the church. And they feigned to speak for the church And verse 5 tells us who they were. They were a party of the Pharisees. They were a sect, a part of the Pharisee party. In other words, they were zealous for the law. Now, I want to be fair to these Pharisees. Don't misunderstand. They're not opposed to the Gentile mission. But they were convinced because of their tradition that these new converts had to be brought under the umbrella of Judaism that they needed to be circumcised as well as baptized in order to be fully received and fully redeemed. Let me repeat the concern again. It is necessary for them to be circumcised and ordered to keep the law of Moses. A careful reading of this text, I think, exposes the real dilemma In chapter 15, verse 1, Luke refers to circumcision, listen, as a custom, but in verse 5, the Pharisees call it a law, and there's a difference, and therein lies the rub. There is a big difference between a custom and a law. What is it? A custom is a tradition, like at 1045, wearing the robes, wearing the stoles, that's a tradition. That's a ritual, that's a, that's a cultural, contextual norm. But a law is a rule. A law is a regulation. A law is a non-negotiable. There's an old adage that I think once was attributed to John Wesley, but I think it really goes back to St. Augustine that says this, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, charity. I love that quote, but here's the problem. What do you do when you cannot agree on the essentials? And Luke says, Paul and Barnabas, I love the way he understates it, had no small dissension and debate with these individuals. Let's face it, that's an understatement. The feathers were flying. It hit the fan. And sometimes we turn custom into law, and sometimes we turn law 
into custom. It's a big problem in Jerusalem that should not be trivialized. Now, I want to tell you there were sincere and devout Christians on both sides of that issue in this debate. Advocates for circumcision could quote scripture that said circumcision and other parts of the law are non-negotiable. And they're not to be superseded by some Johnny-come-lately new revelation of the Spirit. Besides, they would say Jesus himself was circumcised. In fact, Genesis chapter 17 verse 13 says, circumcision is an everlasting covenant. On the other hand, advocates of the law-free Christianity said that those edicts were for Jews only. And the Gentiles were never expected to keep this yoke. In fact, they too would have quoted the scripture in the Old Testament, the prophets, Ezekiel and Jeremiah, who said that circumcision is a matter of the heart. It's not an external law, it's an internal spirit. And it's clear in this text from Peter, Paul, and Barnabas that the Holy Spirit fell on these Gentiles before they ever knew anything about the Mosaic law. This is a serious issue. Discerning the work of the Holy Spirit can be one of the most ambiguous exercises that people of faith can ever be a part of. In fact, I have noticed, haven't you, that what appears to be the work of the Spirit to this person may appear to be blasphemy to another person. So it really begs the question, how do you know? Well, we have the gift of discernment, which is a spiritual gift according to Romans 12. And that's not just internal or individual reflection, that's communal contemplation. I remember when I was a teenager, my father gave me a rule of thumb about spiritual discernment that I have never forgotten. I want to share it with you. He said to me, son, the Holy Spirit will never lead you to do something that looks unlike Jesus. I have never forgotten that. When you're struggling between one issue and another, let me say it again to you. The Holy Spirit will never lead you to do something that looks dissimilar to Jesus. Although I've noticed in nearly 40 years of ministry that occasionally somebody will approach me and tell me something that they've done that's particularly foolish and say, the Spirit led me to do it. And I think they're right, but I think it was the wrong Spirit. It was not the Holy Spirit, it was the Spirit with a little S. It's serious. Unless you are circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, you can't be saved. That's serious. If what these Pharisees are saying is true, then the grace of God in Christ is not enough for your salvation. If what they're saying is true, you have to add something to grace. So it's grace plus law, or it's grace plus good works. It's grace plus moral integrity. It's, it's Jesus plus Moses equals salvation. But that's not what the early church was teaching in Antioch. And that's not what we're teaching in Brentwood. 
They were teaching this simple truth. It is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Grace plus nothing equals salvation. Jesus plus nothing equals salvation. The gospel that we proclaim is that Jesus is enough. Jesus himself said, I've not come to abolish the law, I've come to fulfill the law. This is serious business. Striking at the heart of the very nature of salvation, so I want you to watch what happens. I think what we see in Acts 15 is a clinic in theological conflict resolution. Now watch this. Antioch doesn't go rogue. They don't disaffiliate with the apostles and elders. They don't say, hey, forget about Jerusalem. They send a delegation to Judea and Paul and Barnabas and others are sent to discuss the issue. In other words, they are respecting apostolic authority. And they know in their hearts, we would have never heard of Jesus had it not been for Jerusalem. And so in respect for the elders and apostles, they go to Judea. And when they arrive, I love this, verse 4 says that they welcomed the folks from Antioch. In other words, the mother church didn't say, hey, lock the door, here they come, trouble's coming. They didn't say that. They said, come on in. And they talked and they prayed and they debated and they deliberated. And nobody said, hey, let Antioch do their thing and Jerusalem do their thing. And it was Peter that turned the tide. It's interesting how James refers to him as Simeon. That's his Hebrew name because he's talking to the Hebraic Jews at this point. And Peter takes the floor and reiterates his experience in Caesarea when he baptized the first Gentile, Cornelius. In fact, we've read an excerpt of his testimony. Let me give you a different translation. This is Peter's testimony from the message, from Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of this particular passage. Friends, you know that from early on, God made it quite plain that he wanted pagans to hear the message of the good news and embrace it. And not in any secondhand roundabout way, but firsthand straight from my mouth, and God who cannot be fooled by any pretense on our part but always knows the human heart gave to them the Holy Spirit exactly as he gave him to us. He treated the outsiders exactly as he treated us beginning at the very center of who they were and working from that center outward cleaning up their lives as they trusted and believed in him. So why are you trying to out God God. I love that phrase. Why am I trying to out God God, loading these new believers down with rules that crushed our ancestors and crushed us too? Do we not believe that we're saved by the ma master Jesus who amazingly and out of sheer generosity moved to save us just as he did those beyond our ethnic group? So what are we fussing about? End of quote. 
it got real quiet. Paul and Barnabas also shared their testimony in the same way from the mission field, and there was utter and complete silence. I don't know who said it, but I agree, silence is argument carried out by other means, and sometimes it's golden, and they listened. And after a moment, James took the microphone. This is not James, the brother of John. This is not one of the sons of thunder. That James was killed in Acts 12 by Herod. He was the first Jewish martyr after Jesus. This is not James, the son of Alphaeus. This is James, the brother of Jesus, who is now the head of the church in Jerusalem, who didn't even believe that his brother was the Messiah until after the resurrection. And after thorough debate, he took the mic and he connected their testimonies with the scripture. What Simeon has said about God's grace to the Gentiles is in sync with the prophet Amos. And then he quotes Amos, I will rebuild the dwelling of David which has fallen and from its ruins I will rebuild it and I will set it up so that all other people may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles over whom my name has been called. He's connecting the missional experience with the scripture. And then he gives the verdict. We will not trouble those Gentiles who are turning to God. Now I want you to notice this. They never took a vote. They didn't do a secret ballot. They didn't ask for a show of hands. They didn't use Robert's rules of order. They'd never heard of Robert. They found consensus through prayer and contemplation and discernment, and they decided grace plus nothing equals everything. Grace plus nothing equals everything. James documented then the verdict, made a copy of it, and had it hand-delivered to Antioch by elders of the church in Jerusalem with one caveat. Listen to this. There's a little P.S. here. Listen to this. You would do well, brothers, to abstain from food offered to idols from fornication, which is temple prostitution, from strangled animals, and from blood. That's unkosher food. Now watch what he's doing. He's reducing the Jewish holy, holiness code in Leviticus to these abbreviated requirements. But it's not a prerequisite for salvation. It's a prescription for unity. In other words, what the brother of Jesus is doing is he's saying, hey, it's important for Jews not to Judaize Gentiles. But it's also important for Gentiles not to gentilize Jews so that both may live together in unity. What he's really saying to those law-free Gentiles is don't use your freedom to offend someone else. 
Now, I've discovered even in marriage that unity is precious when you walk through conflict in order to reach it. It's precious. If there's to be unity in the church in Jerusalem, both groups have to be willing to accommodate themselves out of love for God and for each other. And when we do, we begin to look a little more like Jesus and a little less like us. And the word we becomes more important than me. We could use a dose of that in Washington, in Jerusalem. We could use a dose of that in our culture. One word and I'm finished. Heather King is a writer, a blogger, a news commentator, uh, who is also a recovering alcoholic, who not long ago came to faith in Christ. After coming to faith, after making her confession, she did what we usually would do. She started attending church, and she wrote of her initial experience. These are her words, and I quote, My first impulse in worship was to think, my God, I don't want to get sober with these nutcases, these bizarre people with differing political views, taste in music, food, books, whatever. Nothing shatters our egos, she said, like worshiping with people we didn't handpick. And all the humiliation of discovering that we're thrown in with extremely unpromising people, people who are broken, people who are misguided, wishy-washy out for themselves, people who are us. But we don't come to worship to be with people who are like us in the way we want them to be. We come because we have staked our souls on the fact that Christ is the way, the truth, and the life and the church is the best place, maybe the only place, to be while we struggle to figure out what that means. We come because we're hard-pressed to say which is the bigger of two scandals of God, that he loves us or that he loves everybody else. Boy, there's a dilemma that you'll never unravel. The Holy Spirit empowers us sometimes to agree to disagree and to accommodate ourselves for the sake of the unity of the church in a way that makes room for others. To the glory of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. May it be so. Amen.